finished. Um, growing up, I was never a big comic book fan. Uh, you know, I liked some superheroes when I was a kid, but for the most part, the idea of uh, like men with tights and capes never really thrilled me. So I never, never really got into the superhero thing. And you know, ever since the movies are okay, but I've never really gotten to the movies either. I do love Oriental kung fu movies and things like that, though. So like when Crouching Tiger and Hidden Dragon came out, I loved that movie. And everybody was so quick to pick on it. They're like, oh, it's so ridiculous, man. There's people like running on trees and stuff and like flying across the room. Like, yeah, you think it's ridiculous because they don't have a cape on. You know, the only difference is they're not wearing capes and tights, you know. But that's an oriental superhero. That's what the movies were about. Um, And they're just different culture, different kind of hero. But yeah, I never got into them. But one thing, when I was a kid, they always worked to develop the characters, especially the heroes, more and more. But somewhere along the way, that switched, and they started developing villains. And it's gotten now to where the villain has become the big thing. I decided when I was, uh, I don't remember how old, but early junior high, maybe sixth grade, I decided in Texas my friends all had comics, so I was going to give it a shot. And so I went to the comic book store and looked for a comic book. And uh, there was a new series that had come out, and it was just absolutely gory. It was the first comic book that was really like a gory comic book. And I was like, okay, this is it right here. I'm going to get this one. This is going to be mine. It's a brand new one. It's wild. I wasn't supposed to be able to get it, but, you know, you know how that goes. So so got the first one. Got the second one, got the third one, got the fourth one. After the fourth one, I'm thinking, this is really ridiculous. Uh, This comic book is going nowhere. And so I gave it to a friend of mine for Christmas because I was too cheap to buy him anything, any kind of gift, even though he bought me one. So I gave him my four comics, uh, which turned out to be the best Christmas gift he ever got because who knew with a name like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that it would ever be anything, but it was. (laughs) So... That dude should be loving me for the rest of his life. I'm sure I said, if he still has them, I set him up real good. Uh, but, you know, who would have ever thought that that comic book would have taken off? And in the beginning, like I said, it was super bloody. But is that a hero? You know, a turtle in a sewer that eats pizza and slices things up. You know, I, I don't don't get it, but it was. But nowadays, you know, the movie's out now. you got Batman versus Superman. you got X-Men civil war like everything is just seems to gotten darker so it gets harder to understand who's the hero so what makes a hero what it what how would you i'm not saying define it i just mean like what what makes a hero somebody willing to go the extra mile like that one that's a good one yeah somebody stands up for the underdog somebody that uh defeats the enemy Whoever the enemy is, I guess. Somebody you can count on. I'd say that's a good one. And what's funny is that the the answers that you guys are given are great answers, and they're all tangible. You know what I mean? We're not talking about able to fly here. You know what I mean? Or stop a bullet, necessarily. I was thinking when I was writing these things down, because I made my own little list of, like, integrity and different things like that, but even just being a good person... On some level, like in today's standards, even just being a good person seems to be a... But then I stopped and backed up and thought, well, what's a good person? 
You know, what's the Bible say? Nobody. <laughs> There's only one good person, and that's God. He set laws in place, 613 of them, not 10. He set 613 laws in place, and he said, here's the laws. Nobody can keep them. Nobody. Just me. Nobody's above the law either. So you're either under the law in this room and cursed by it, or you are rescued from the law as a result of a relationship with Jesus Christ. But that's it, really. So nobody is perfect, even the ruler. He made the rules for the ruler. Um, Before we press on... Let me back up just a little bit and review something here. Look at Ecclesiastes 9. We talked about it last week, but I'm going to show you something in there. God made rules even for the king. And I believe Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. We've talked about this. If you don't think he did, that's fine. You can go back and listen to the podcast and find out why I feel like I do. I'm not going to rehash that. But Solomon was king. And one thing I mentioned about Solomon was that I think that he seriously fell. Obviously, I know he did because he had a few problems. But there are three rules for the king. Actually, there's four rules for the king in Deuteronomy 17. You don't have to turn to it. But there's four rules for kings in Deuteronomy 17. God said, when you have a king, you can have a king, but he must be one of your own. He's got to be a Hebrew king. But that king, there's four rules. Okay? Three don'ts and one do. Okay? The first, I'll tell you what they are. You don't have to turn. I'll just tell you. Verse 16 Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, the first rule is he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt to buy horses. Solomon is world famous for his stables and all of his horses. You can go to Israel now and see the ruins of the stable cities where he had so many stables and horses. And the Bible tells you that he literally went to Egypt to get them. So blew that one. Number two. Verse 17 says, the king shall not acquire for himself many wives. Yeah, that's a no-brainer. We'll come back to that. That's the one he's famous for. Number three, later on in verse 17, he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. He was the wealthiest king perhaps ever. So to say that he blew it is pretty substantial. Now, there was one must-do, verse 18 through 20. And actually, I'm going to read it because... It's pretty cool. This is the one thing he must do. When he sits on his throne of his kingdom, he shall, listen, write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him and he'll read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord by keeping the words, all the words that are in this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up against his brothers and turn aside from the commandments. So the one thing he was supposed to do as a king is copy, in our language, copy the Bible himself and make sure that the priest would look at it and say, yep, you got it. Exactly, that's it. And then carry it with him everywhere. Now, if he did that, he'd know these three don'ts. But to the best of my knowledge, there's pretty much no king in Israel's history that did that, David included. They may have had access to it, but to my knowledge, none of them wrote their copy and kept it with them at all times. So anyway, Solomon, though, is most famous for failing on the behalf of the wives. So let me show you something here real quick on that one. Look at Ecclesiastes 9.9. Whether he knew the law from writing it himself or not, there seems to be evidence that he knew. Look at 9.9. I already talked about it last week, but we'll look at a different direction on it real quick. Enjoy life with what? The wife, singular. The wife 
whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. Your portion. You see what he's saying? That wife, not, not being funny, this is just the way he's wording it, that of all of the women out there, she's yours. She's your portion of the women. The wife, the singular wife is your portion of the plural options, women that are out there. Not multiple wives. I'll give you a couple more examples from Solomon. Proverbs 31 is about what? A woman. Yeah, a woman. Not women, a woman. Some say it's a wife. Some say it's mom. Some say whatever. It's irrelevant to me. It's a woman is the point, not women. Song of Solomon. Don't turn. I'm just giving you some. Song of Solomon 6.8. Says there are sixty queens, eighty concubines, and virgins without number. But my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The whole book of Song of Solomon about one woman, you know what I mean, and one man. Proverbs five eighteen Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breastfill you at all times with delight, being intoxicated always in her love. And as for Solomon, he did have a wife. He did have one wife. Second Chronicles 8.11 tells you out of his own words that his wife is the Pharaoh's daughter. Right or wrong, that's who he married. Okay, So he had a wife. And he knew very well that he was supposed to have one wife, but instead he had many, 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 many wives. So bringing that back to what we're talking about, what makes a hero or what makes a person worthy of status? And I think what God's trying to say in making this list in Deuteronomy 17 is the answer to that question, if you ask me. And you know how we've been compiling a list of verses that kind of illustrate positive side of all of this negativity in Ecclesiastes. So the positive verse this week is Proverbs 15.33. I'll give it to you again later. I'll show you the list. But Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. I think that's what's being said here. Humility comes before honor. So look at Ecclesiastes 9, and we'll go on. Verse uh, 13, here we got a true crouching tiger, hidden dragon story. This one's awesome. (laughs) I like how he sticks this in there. Verse 13, he says, Solomon says, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. A great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege siege works around it or against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. This is an awesome illustration. And if it's a literal story, we're not told who the person is, which further makes the point. What is the point? Yeah, the guy's not remembered. Why is he telling the story? What's the point he's trying to make? You could probably argue a few different points, but context. I have written in my Bible out by the side of this, never mistake meekness for weakness. It's kind of the idea that this guy, this great, wise individual is in this city, yet 
Nobody knows it. In fact, he saves the city, but nobody recognizes that or honors him for it. Is that wrong? It's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. Give you a sidebar example. You don't have to turn to it. Luke fourteen seven. You already know this. Jesus begins to tell a parable in verse eight. He says, "When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both is going to come to you and say, get up. That ain't your seat. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. In other words, you're going to make the walk of shame to the back of the table is what he's saying. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say uh, to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be exalted in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I think what he's trying to say, Jesus and Solomon here, is that a person uh, of honor doesn't need to be told that. He doesn't need to be informed, and he doesn't need other people to be told, and, or she. And if they are honored or whatever or praised for it, there's a good possibility that there's a crash coming behind it, some kind of humility on the back end of it. But he, he's saying nobody's got to tell Nobody's got to tell of your great deeds or your great glory if you're this character. Look at verse 17. He says, The words of the wise heard in a quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. That's a powerful statement. Verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, he's going to start going through some Proverbs-type talk here. But it, it actually is cohesive. It does. It seems like it's disjointed, but it's not. So I'll show it to you as we go. But... We're going to kind of pull it apart, too. And we're kind of focusing on this idea again. If the world was yours, how would you know a hero? All right. And in this context, he says in verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. He's told this story about this guy who saved a city, a hero, you might say, unknown in wisdom rather than in war, even though he was being surrounded. But what does it mean? What is the statement, wisdom is better than weapons of war? What what does that mean? What do you take from that, I guess? Well, that's a great point. If you don't know how to use the weapons, they're worthless. We could stack every kind of weapon on the planet. We could fill this whole building full of weapons. We could have the most sophisticated weapons there are, but if we don't know how to use them, then it really doesn't, they're worthless. On the other hand, we could stack this room full of the most wise people on the planet, and we may not need a single weapon. They may actually solve whatever the problems are that have led to the need for weapons. Or maybe you look at it this way, the pen is mightier than the sword, right? But if we got a whole room full of people together, and they all were going to solve whatever the conflict is, and they're all the wisest person, what happens in the room if one of those people shoots another one in the head? It's over. Peace is over. Talk's over. It's done. And that's what he's saying next when he says, but one sinner destroys much good. You know, even if you've got a room full of peacemakers and wisdom is there, it only takes one to blow it. And then that one becomes a huge deal. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. He says, dead flies make the perfume's ointment give off a stench. <laughs> no kidding. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The focus there is not on folly, it's on little. A little bit outweighs wisdom and whatever. You know, 
what he's saying is this. How much, and I'm not asking you to name any names, but maybe think about somebody that you know that has this kind of history. How much does it take to ruin a reputation? Maybe you're the person. I don't know. How much does it take to ruin a reputation? Very little. How big an offense does it have to really be? Very little. Now, how much does it take to get it back? A lot. And they're greatly outweighed. You know, there's no balance there whatsoever. That's kind of what he's what he's getting at. And I understand this. You know, I use my own self for that for this one. I've been divorced uh, many years ago. I've been remarried to the most amazing woman for 15 years, but it still haunts me occasionally. It doesn't bother me, haunt me, but I still get judged by it, even though it's been really it's been nearly 20 years since the divorce. But I've been remarried for 15, and that relationship has been completely healed. For almost all 15 of those years. And the woman comes to this church. And friends with my wife. And all those things. But that doesn't matter. It still haunts me in some circles. That's the idea. It's just some things it takes so much to get back. Look, he goes on verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right. But a fool's heart to the left. That's pretty obvious. He's just saying they're led in opposite directions by their heart. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. That word sense is heart. Same word used in verse 2. So even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks heart. And he says, he says to everyone that he's a fool. Now, this don't mean he's walking down the road going, hey, I'm an idiot. You know, hey, I'm stupid. That's not, that's not what it means. It means that his behavior makes clear to everybody that he is stupid. That's what the word fool means is stupid. So if I mix that word in there and that word offends you, I'm sorry, but that's just that's what it means, okay? Verse 4, he says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. What do you think that means? Don't get up. Yeah, if the ruler, and it doesn't say the king, who's a ruler? Somebody in charge. It could be anybody. It doesn't matter. Somebody who's in charge. They get in your face, don't stand up. That's what it's saying. Don't stand up like you're ready to have a fight. Look what he says. For calmness, the word calmness there, Hebrew is marpe. It means like healing or curing or soothing or tranquil. The ideas of a of a pond that is just like glass. So he's saying that calmness will lay great offenses or sins. Same word to rest. So he's saying that you, you remain calm in that moment and st- still, and it will put to death a lot of sin. Huh? Yes. Yeah, a soft answer turns away wrath. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's also really hard to do that. You know what I mean? It's easy to read it and say it. It's very hard to do it, but we know it's true. And in verse 5, Solomon begins to wrestle again with a common struggle he's been wrestling with. There's an evil I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. So whoever the boss is, king, ruler, whatever... Folly is set in many high places, which basically he's saying fools can have wisdom. And the rich sit in low places or low conditions. Basically what he's saying is fools can have wisdom and kings can be fools. He's doing this whole unbalanced thing again. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Remember how he's been getting frustrated because he's saying, why do the 
the righteous suffer the same as the wicked do, and the wicked get a, have a great time, and the righteous do this, and blah, blah, blah. He's just been wrestling with this. He can't get God's like economy figured out. can't get the balance straightened out. It's driving him crazy, still driving him crazy. But what he's saying is all true. Verse 8, he, digs, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and the serpent will bite him when he breaks through a wall. This is the idea of, a violent person digging a pit in order to trap somebody or a thief trying to break down a wall to get in. And he's saying that danger, there's always danger, even for the thief or the violent person. Well, that's easy, but the next sentence makes it harder. What he says is, he who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So he's saying, guess what? Even those who work hard for an honest living still can get hurt. You know, if you're out there working hard on something and there's a thief out there plotting to hurt somebody, you both suffer in the same possibility of getting hurt. And then he says, verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, I'm thinking of an axe here, so he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. The word succeed there means make the right application. So what do you think he's saying there? What would you do if you were the person he's talking about in this case? The iron's blunt. If one doesn't sharpen the edge, he must use much strength. But wisdom will make somebody make the right decision here. What would be the right decision if you were that person? Sharpen the edge. Yeah, he's saying that you're going to, the person's going to prepare the wise person. I'm using the term hero frequently here. Going to take the time to prepare to sharpen the edge first because in the long run, they're going to be less likely to get hurt. It's going to pay off more in the end. Verse 11, he goes on with the same idea. He's saying, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there's no advantage or profit to the charmer. Yeah, duh. You know, if the, if the, if the cobra bites you before you start playing the tune, you know, that's exactly what he's saying. Literally, the word charmer there is the, it means a barking tongue. Or a chirping tongue like a like a bird. Noisemaker is the idea. And all of these, what he's really saying here is that wisdom, or if you're the hero, you, you prepare before the act is what he's saying. He's saying you, you, you have patience, you prepare, you plan, you know, you think it through. And the reason I keep using the term hero here as opposed to the king or the ruler, per se, is because anybody can be uh, a hero. Not anybody can be a king. And a king doesn't automatically make you the person that's being described here. And you'll, you'll see that as we keep going. And he turns and he kind of starts looking at something else here in the mind of a, what I would call a hero. They have more than just plans. They have words. Uh, but not just talk. You know there's a difference between words and talk. We say talk is what? Cheap. Exactly. This guy, whoever, or woman that's being descri- that we're describing here, they, they have words that endorse their, 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 their wisdom. They're the opposite of the charmer, the barking tongue that just makes all this noise. They, they don't have to say much, but what they do say endorses the fact that they have great wisdom. It makes you want more. It makes you want to say, oh, let's talk a little while, you know, because you, you realize even though they've only said a few words, you're like, man, I can get something from this person. Verse 12, he says, The words of the wise man's mouth win him favor. The word favor is grace. I think more of what 
is going on here is the idea that the words of the wise man, the, the mouth shows favor or shows grace, that people can find grace in the words of a wise man, and the word of a, words of a wise man are graceful, but the lips of a fool consume him, or swallow him, or destroy him, or every thought of his mind is his own, or her own. You know, you know what I'm talking about? It's like a whole bunch of thoughts and a whole bunch of words, or she loves the sound of her own voice. You know that person? If you do, don't say it. <laughs> Verse 13, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. From start to finish, every word coming out of their mouth is obnoxious. Verse 14, a fool multiplies words. Though no one knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. This is modern philosophy all day long right here. If you like philosophy, I'm not hating. I'm just saying they say so many words. Sit down and read a book of modern philosophy or listen to a teacher or somebody speak on it. They say so many words that make no sense at all, and they sound so smart for it, but they have no idea what they're even saying to begin with. And maybe they do, but we don't. So does it matter whether they know what they're saying if nobody else knows what they're saying? You know, that's kind of the idea. All kinds of words, but do they really know what they're talking about? It sounds like they know what they're talking about. Look at verse 15. The toil... Of a fool wearies him. The word fool is plural. Him is singular. So it's not so much the toil of a fool. It's the toil of the fools wearies him. Singular. For he, singular, does not know the way to the city. You could just underline he doesn't know the way. So let let me explain that out. What he's saying here is the dude, whoever he is or she is, has got a whole lot of words, a whole lot of talk, sounds real impressive, seems like he or she knows the way, and so foolish people begin to follow follow the foolish words. And now the person who has spoken all these great words and now has a people following them, all right, you know where you're going, you know the way, you know the truth, you know all that, we're behind you, where are we heading? Um, This way. You know, and oh, well, we're going this way, and oh, we're going this way. It begins to become a stressor. It's kind of the idea you ever tried to hold on to a lie. Okay, maybe I'm the only one in the room that's done that. But if you try to hold on to a lie, it just gets exhausting. Like it's just it wears you out trying to make sure you're constantly holding your illusion up, and that's kind of the idea. Then he goes on just a little farther. We're just going a little bit more through here. He says in verse 16. He starts talking about, again, I'm using the term hero, how how a hero can have a good time, but understand the purpose of a good time. Watch this. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. He means young or immature. And your prince's feast, the word feast, we've already talked about it, it's a party. So they party in the morning. They're up early. It's too early to be drinking, but not these people, bro. They're at it right, bright and early. Verse 17. Happier are you. So, woe to you in verse 16, 17, happier you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your prince's party at the proper time. Watch, for strength, not for drunkenness. Now, he's not saying that they party by drinking eggs in a glass and energy drinks and you know protein shakes. That's not what he means by for strength. What he means by for strength is for, for enjoyment, so refreshment, 
relaxation for a good time so that they're charged, energized to go back into the battle or back into work or back into whatever it is they're doing. Not so they wake up in the morning with a hangover suffering. That's, that's what he's getting at here. And you think about some of the kings in the Bible. Verse 16, your king is a child. How many kings in the Bible were children when they were made kings? Not just Hebrew kings, other ones. But Hebrew king that comes to my mind is Manasseh, who was probably the worst nasty king, and he became king when he was 12. I mean, can you imagine having a 12-year-old? As You think our presidential options are bad. I mean, imagine having a 12-year-old. Um, Belshazzar, who was not in Daniel chapter 5, who was not a Hebrew king, but he was he was placed in charge at the time after Israel had been conquered. And he had the famous writing on the wall moment. But what happened was he decided to have a great big party and they partied it up and got sloppy drunk and decided, hey, we got all this money. Why don't we go get the gold out of the from the uh, temple in Israel and let's just get drunk on Let's drink our wine out of that. And then that night, Persia invaded and destroyed him. And then David in Second Samuel 11, David's probably one of the more famous kings that messed up. And he's famous for Bathsheba, right? But Daniel, I mean, Second uh, Samuel 11 is where Bathsheba happens. But what started it? He didn't go to war, yeah. It says in the time when kings were supposed to go to war, David was laying on his couch eating potato chips. That's the way I picture it. Potato chips all over his stomach. That's the idea. Doing nothing, you know, getting lazy, picking his nose, doing nothing, watching reality TV. Until the sun went down. And um, he was supposed to be out, but he wasn't. And that led to the lust, to the rest of it. Look at verse 18, though. It goes right on into that. Through sloth or laziness, the roof sinks in. <laughs> and through indolence, indolence means like sinking hands. It's like the idea that your hands are doing this. You know? So through laziness, through sinking hands, the house leaks. I think that's literal and figurative. David's case, it was certainly figurative. 19, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens the heart, and money answers everything. Uh, that would be sarcasm. He's, he's been talking about these individuals who are just looking for the party and, you know, doing all of these things, partying it up and eating and drinking and doing their thing. And he's saying, you know what? Bread's for laughter, wine's for a, a party, and money's for a, money just fixes it all, doesn't it? Money, just solve it in the morning. Don't worry about it. As long as you got money, it's okay. He's just being sarcastic because verse 20 says, however, he's getting a bit frustrated, but he says, however, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. Now, he's not saying your bedroom is off limits or something like it's not. It's not that. He's just saying that even in a private place, don't curse the rich or even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. Why? Why is he saying not to do that? Huh? Well, he does say that. He says a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. That's not saying that there's, you know, we're not talking about Disney here. He's being figurative for the fact that people talk. Somebody overhear you or whatever. Or if you even think it, you're likely to end up saying it at some point. And as soon as you say it, it's out there. And if it gets back to the king, what happens if it gets back to the king that you think he ought to be cursed? Off with your head, right? You know, Exactly. But why would he say not to do that? I know that's the one reason, but why not? Why else not? Yeah. 
It does. But your actions start to follow your thoughts and your words. And besides all that, is it your place? Can't God handle it? What are you going to do about it anyway? You know, that's the idea is that God God can handle it. You, you don't even bring it up. It's not your place to do so. It's kind of like David and Samuel in the cave that Dr. Shaddix talked about last week from 1 Samuel where David had every opportunity to kill the guy, and he said, who am I to touch God's anointed? Well, you're the one that was anointed, David. If not you, then who else? Well, that's the way he saw it. God, he's the only one. Verse 1, we're just doing a few verses here into 11, and we'll stop. Verse 1 says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you'll find it after many days. That is a really weird statement. Um, if you throw bread in the water, uh, if, I, if you throw my bread in the water, you can leave it there. You know what I mean? I'm not interested in finding it in a few days. Uh, but I had to look it up. There's two kind of ideas on it. I'll tell you what, where I lean. And, uh, but the, the, the one idea is that it's saying you sow your seed in flood areas. Uh, the other idea, which is more where I lay because of the context, is it's talking about a return on investment. And so maybe like a seed trade or like, selling your bread or putting your bread on the waters it can go farther it can go to more places and it can return bigger and you'll see why he's why i say that because verse two he says give a portion to seven or even to eight for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth what's he saying there yeah distribute out your finances give and he's saying give it in this case so let's say it's bread or whatever it is give it to seven people or maybe even eight people or 70 people, or maybe even 80 people, because you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. What does that mean? What is he saying? Yep, diversify. No, that's right. That's part of it. Why, why would he be saying that in terms of you don't know what may happen on the earth? You don't know what's coming? He's going to come to that. Don't wait for the perfect time to do what you want to do. That's coming up for sure. But why does he say give a portion to these people? This is a different kind of investment. He didn't say put your money in. He said give it freely. Why would I freely give bread to a whole bunch of people? Because they need it. And what happens someday? You might need it. Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. Give it to seven people or eight people or a hundred people. I know people in this church, some maybe even in this room, certainly some that were here last night, that have uh, uh, wealth. You know, let's call it that, wealth. And they are the sharingest people that I know. Like they share everything that they have. They have your back. They love to give to people, to help people. And I can tell you right now, if any one of these people found themselves in a spot, there would be line around the corner to help them. I mean, there would be lines all over the place to help them. That's the idea that you better seek some friends because you may need them. <laughs> you might need them one day. And then he does go on to exactly what you said about timing. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Duh. If the tree falls to the south or the north, does it make a sound? No, that's not what he says. In the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. So he's saying if, if the wind blows a tree down over here, that's where it's going to fall. If the wind's blowing this way and the tree falls down over that way, that's where it's going to fall. If the clouds are full of rain, it's going to rain. 
And then he says, so he who observes the wind or stares at the wind watching it blow the trees is never going to sow anything. And he who regards the clouds or stares at the clouds going, hey, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, it might rain, it's going to rain, it's going to rain, is never going to reap anything. He's, He's saying stop staring at the sky waiting for manna from heaven, stop daydreaming while the world passes by, stop expecting all the answers. Mainly what he's saying is if you keep waiting, as you said, for the perfect time to do something, you're never going to do it. If you keep waiting for the perfect time to do it, it's it's never going to happen. You're just going to keep staring around waiting and you're never going to get anything done. Verse 5 is the answer. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. That is an awesome statement, by the way. Talk about abortion and things. The spirit comes to the bones in the woman of a uh, the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. What's he saying there? I know he's saying God's in complete control, but what's he actually saying in the context here? The spirit comes to the bones of a child in a womb. What's he talking about happening there? What comes with the spirit? Life, life. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the only one that gives life. You can stand there and stare at the skies all day. You can stand there and watch the wind all day long. Or you can even get to work if you want. It doesn't matter. God's the one that's going to bring the life. So either God's going to bring it or he's not going to bring it. End of story. Look at the last verse here. We'll do verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand or sow your seed. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So what he's saying is work the whole day equally. He's the one that gives life. He's the one that gives harvest. You work the whole day. He's not saying work 24 hours a day. He's just saying if you've got an eight-hour day, you put in eight hours equally. You don't work the first two hours really hard and then slack it off the rest of the time because it might be the evening when you hit the bank. You know what I mean? So I'll give you an illustration of that really quickly, and then I'll sum all this up. When I was in the band... And we were touring all the time back in maybe 2002 or three. We ended up stopping at a concert event. This lady who had a venue in Kingsport, which is up near Bristol in the eastern corner of the state. We were on the way home from being gone for a while. She said, would you stop in and do a show for us? And we're like, sure. We'd played there before. It's a pretty big venue. They had a sound guy there waiting on us when we pulled up. And she said, oh, I'll split the door with you and I'll pay for your, your travel expenses and whatnot. And we loved playing there. We always had a really good crowd anyway. It was like a Christian club that was owned by a Methodist church, and this lady ran it. So we stopped there to play, and we got out, and we set all our stuff up, and we got everything put up on the stage, and sound guy got a sound check. The lights got all set and everything, and it came time to open the doors. And usually we have several hundred. It could hold probably four or 500 people. And uh, the way the place was set up is it had a big kind of concert room with the stage and the lighting and everything and a door in the back and then a hallway that kind of wrapped around to another room that had like a juice bar type thing with some coffee drinks and uh, foosball and pool tables and things for kids, you know, teenagers and whatnot to come in and hang out. And so that night, it's us, it's the sound guy, and it's two girls that were working back in that area around the corner. And when they open the door, there's nobody there. I'm like, what's, what in the world? 
and so we keep waiting. Nobody comes. I'm not saying that to be figurative like, well, there was really a small group. I'm talking zero, like nobody. We're like, what is the deal? Well, the lady came to us, and she said, you know what? I'm sorry. Didn't even think about it. They have like a river bend type thing like we do here up there, and that was their Christian night. And she said, everybody's going to be down there. Uh, nobody's going to be here tonight. And so you guys, I'll go on and give you some money, and I'll, I'll – try to offset a little bit for y'all stopping and everything if y'all want to go ahead and go home and um we were like nah we're here what what the heck let's just go play so we went up we got on the stage and we told the sound guy we were like we'll treat it as a rehearsal or whatever we told the sound guy hey man just kick the lights on and we'll go and so he kicked them on and and as you as you probably if you've been on stage know you can't see anything when all those lights are going so they were all on, and we treated it like we were live to a thousand people. I mean, our singer was even out there going, let me hear you shout, you know, holding the mic, and there's nobody, nobody, you know. And we're jumping up and down. He even presented the gospel. I mean, he was like, if you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, you need to blah, 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 and I need you to, you know, I'm going to give you a chance to respond right now. And we were jumping up and down. I was covered in sweat, probably the greatest show we ever played to nobody. <laughs> And uh, then the lights came up, and we were all laughing, you know, man, that was awesome. And and uh, lights came up, and in the back of the room, the, we didn't see them, but these two girls that had been around the corner were standing in the back of the room, and one of the girls was crying, and she told us she got saved tonight. And she said that God brought you here just for me. Because she said, you see, if we had left, which we could have done, she'd have never heard it. And if anybody had shown up, they would have had to be back in that back corner and they wouldn't have heard it. But because nobody was there and because we still played, she was able to stand there and hear the whole thing. And I'm not saying that to brag, but I'm saying that's the idea that you, you, you work hard all the way through. And God decides if life is going to come out of it or not. Because you never know. You know, you never know how it's going to work. So let's sum it all up. How do you know a hero? I'll give you a few words just from what we've read. Just some words from what we've read. Humility. Integrity, patience, planning, words, <laughs> few but accurate, you know, enjoys life but in a proper way, shares, makes friends, works hard from start to finish. You know, we could keep going, but those are some. And I think you can't do this without thinking about the gospel. There is one who rescued a whole city. In fact, he rescued a whole planet. Chapter 9, verse 15 there says, No one remembered that poor man, but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words were not heard. Think about that in light of this, Mark 6, 1. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard it were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done in his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. Same idea. You know this one, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one who men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But what? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ecclesiastes 11.5 there again says, You do not know the way the Spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman. So you don't know the work of God who makes everything. He alone is the hero. Period. Because he alone can bring life. Practical thing to take with you. Some free philosophy. Learn to be crucial, but invisible. Learn to be crucial, but invisible. And that's one thing that the comic books did well. Because what was the situation for every hero, for the most part? That hide their identity. Yeah. They were crucial, though. I mean, they were, you, you needed them. Man, you needed them. They, they, were, they were there to stay, but you, but you never knew who they were, technically speaking. They were always invisible. And that, in our context, means that only God gets the glory because only God can, as long as he's the one that's in charge of your life. Now, if you're in charge of the life, go ahead and get your own glory. But you might get humble. And then lastly, just remember that one sinner can destroy a lot of good. Remember, we're all part of the same body. So you've got to look out for each other by your own integrity, by your own uh, behavior in all of this. So last thing here is the list. We've been looking at the positive, pulling the positive from his negative. (laughs) Him saying constantly, everything is meaningless under the sun. So as we've been going through, we've been pulling the positives, how to find meaning under the sun by looking at the negative to find the positive. So add Proverbs 1533 into that. Live humbly, give God glory. Let me pray.